this is Alex. And, and welcome, welcome back. back. Today we have a very special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Christine Tate Burkhardt. I'm a tenure track fellow at the Rosen Institute, which is about the equivalent of an assistant professor. I'm in Edinburgh in my current role for almost three years in March. And before Ooh. that, I've been a postdoc here at the Rosen Institute in Edinburgh as well. Um, do you want more? Yeah, well, um, I sure. suppose you went through the classical route, master's, PhD and bachelor's. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Switzerland and in, like most places in continental Europe, it's still quite standard to do a BSc, MSc because actually that's when you're expected to graduate after BSc, which makes oh, tuition okay. fees normal for an <laughs> MSc because they're not expecting you to be fully, fully grown. Uh, before then so I did that at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology ETH in Zurich um, and uh, did my BSc with what they call biology with a chemical subject which was quite a hard course because you do all of your lectures with the chemists apart from biology which you do Ooh. with a biologist that makes uh, a bit sense <laughs> yeah but it, they spare you botanics and zoology so oh. you don't have to learn all the plant names you just have to learn hundreds of, of organic chemistry name reactions by heart that was not fun yeah maybe seeing the confirmation of protein and stuff might be intense too Yes, yeah, good grief. And I actually <laughs> I actually continued on that path and went on to, to do um, biological chemistry and biochemistry, uh, All right. which is the You must have love with the chemistry then. Well, surprisingly, I thought I was in love with... I, I love chemistry. I love organic chemistry. I love synthesizing stuff. But surprisingly, during our third year of bachelor's, we have... We had an absolutely amazing system. So we had lectures Monday and Tuesday mornings. Okay. And the rest of the week you spend in what they called block courses. So the rest of the week you were on research projects with postdocs or PhD students for usually between three and a half or seven weeks if it was a double block. And it meant you got to explore different subjects. So I did biophysics. Uh, that was my first one. Uh, quite interesting, but I definitely quite quickly realised that that's not quite not what I wanted me. to do. <laughs> um, and within that, I actually had a course in virology and viral entry. And I definitely fell in love with that. And because one of my block courses was actually during the summer break, okay. I had a gap before the, the spring break and within the virus group one of my or my supervisor there Jason who's actually now a PI in Birmingham um, Birmingham hmm. well he just moved there he was actually at the LMCB in London uh, at UCL but that got that lost its MRC funding um, oh. so it's closing down as a unit or basically they don't get the MRC uh, support and he and his partner actually moved up to Birmingham both really clever scientists um, but Jason basically said to us during the blog courses that he'd be happy to take a student for any short internship so that's it's like yeah I'll take you up on that I've got um, 
three and a half weeks plus the spring break so I can do some work and that's when I started to do work. I started to actually skip my actual lectures and just got the notes of other people so I could spend the week in the lab and <laughs> that's that dedication. Was, it was just much more fun. I loved the hands-on work and mm-hmm. the rest was more intuitive by that point. So um, you can learn stuff from a book easily, but you cannot learn skills. finger skills. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in fact, I actually got my name on a paper for those few weeks of work. Wow. That's great. That um, must have catapulted my career. It must be really motivating. Um, it does help. It is very motivating. And it's also the most cool stuff that I was allowed to do. I made basically recombinant viruses at that point, uh, vaccinia virus, which is a very, very large DNA virus. And it's easy to label proteins because the virus is already so big that it doesn't care too much to have fluorescent proteins as well. So I made double coloured ones that had a different core and a different membrane colour and you could actually start to trace them through the entry process. So that was that was my heart bone. I loved virology from that point on out. Um, I still did moved on to my master's and we had to do two, three months internships and then the six months internship on one of those projects. And again, I did a directed evolution of proteins, of enzymes uh, project, which actually got the Nobel Prize last year, year before last. Wow. Francis Arnold, not within that original group, but within the group of Don Hilbert, who's also working with Francis quite a bit. So um, it's actually quite cool to work on a, on a technique and on a method that yeah. actually earns the Nobel Prize. It's quite cool to see that there's actual recognition for these things. Um, but I love that to some extent but I also loved viruses more so I went back to <laughs> to the viruses for my six months uh, internship and, and finished on that um, and then from there on out I I knew I loved lab work so much I knew I wanted to dig in more <laughs> so I needed to do a PhD but I also wanted to explore different countries and and actually move around a bit because mm-hmm. why not? Um, That's true. So I looked for a PhD project in France, Germany and the Netherlands and I'm not entirely sure what eventually uh, made the difference but I moved to the Netherlands to do a PhD project on coronaviruses which are RNA viruses, so I moved to the dark side, as some say. Very news at the moment. Very big news, yeah. Coronaviruses with the new coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan. Um, everyone thinks they know about them by now. Um, I love them because they're actually they're synotic or cross species transmitting ever since they existed. Um, people know them since the SARS outbreak and the MERS outbreak, but there's a much longer history of cross-species transmission of coronaviruses. We have some of the common colds are coronaviruses next to the rhinoviruses, which cause probably about the other half. That's interesting. I um, truly did not know that. Yeah, so there's uh, NL63, HKU1 and OC43 that are strains of human coronaviruses that cause a common cold 
And OC43 is quite clearly linked to a bovine coronavirus. So that is probably one of the first zoonotic transmission within the coronavirus family that we see. But there's also feline coronaviruses, which originate from the canine coronaviruses. And at the oh, same right. so time... from canines so to felines. From dogs to cats. And actually around the same time, that same canine coronaviruses managed to make its way to the pig. So transmissible gastroenteritis virus managed oh, to yeah. get... So they're all three are quite intrinsically linked genetically that they, in that they evolve from the same canine origin. So these things happen much, much more so often. Is it from a common ancestor or just a random mutation? It seems to be the, the canine coronavirus that managed to adapt to the two different species, um, also due to receptor similarities in that case, um, quite, quite clearly. Um, and then they have got such a large host range as well that they're quite interesting from, from whales to the bats to the other mammals, so that's quite impressive. So does that mean if, for example, it manages to go from, like I said, felines, pigs and, and canines, is it easier then afterwards for it to jump to another species such as humans? Surprisingly, it doesn't always seem to work like that, because if we think about how closely we interact with our felines or with our with our pigs, we have these viruses around for hundreds of years, there doesn't seem to have been any new ones from, from those evolving beyond that. So what actually applies this selective pressure for a virus to jump is, is everyone's best guess, really. Um, what seems to happen nowadays is definitely that we're just eva- invading much more of the natural habitats of bats, which are clearly reservoirs for many different viruses, from Lassa virus, Ebola virus, over to um, Nipah and and all the coronaviruses. Um, I mean, we saw that with the Ebola outbreaks recently. We yeah. see it again with the newest coronavirus that we see in humans. We also have an almost direct transmission of a porcine coronavirus, a new one that broke out about three or four years ago in China. It's called HKU2-like or SATS coronavirus. So that again jumped from the bats very, very quickly and very directly. There's only two amino acid differences between the bat and what is actually ended up in a pig. So somehow if that proximity, even just physical proximity is there, there is obviously the chance of transmission. Interesting. But back to back to student fun and student life. Um, <laughs> I think the reason why I chose my PhD project was more because it was embedded in a whole network. So the EU Horizon 2020 uh, program and also the New Horizon programs do usually incorporate these initial training network programs, where you have an, a European wide network. Of scientists and mine was within a virus entry network with a lot of very renowned scientists all across Europe which is obviously an absolutely brilliant networking platform but also learning new techniques we got mm. trained in these some of these other labs we had common meetings and that just seemed like a an absolutely amazing uh, development opportunity and I have to admit I didn't apply to 
any PhD programs. I applied only to professors directly. Oh, no, you can do that. Well, if people have yeah. positions, then oh, yeah. yeah, and it's a really good way. One of one of the things I would say, if if I get direct applications, it's always worth. Don't send a standard letter. Think about okay. your letter in maybe three different aspects. Talk right. about yourself, your background. Talk about what interests you about the general field someone's in and talk about why their work specifically is interesting to you because that tells them that you definitely have a genuine interest, that you have looked at what they're actually doing and that you may have understood some of what they're doing. So that seems to be... To me, that is more appealing and I think, based on my experience, that was also very appealing to my supervisor. Okay, because I always thought, like, PhD is a, is a line. You have to, like, get a PhD first and go to, like, professorship. Mm. After it depends on the programme itself. For example, with eSpire, you apply for a project uh, as two supervisors, but then, again, you have to compete with other projects to get the funding. So not only do you have to compete with other students to get the project, but you have to compete with the project, with other projects. Yeah, How do you it do is. That? Compete against other people's projects? Obviously, every project is different or special in your own way. Yeah, within the eSpire, it's mostly basically yeah. the quality of the students and, it's, and how you actually fend yourself in the interview and in your presentation and how you've understood your new project as well. Um, that is a very UK unique approach I would I would say okay. there is PhD programs in other countries as well and that's how you will get into those as well um, but there's much more kind of direct direct hire in other countries as well like as almost a staff interview so when I went from a PhD interview I met with my supervisor for lunch and that was around 12-ish and I left at 4.30. Wow. So that went well. <laughs> um, I'd say it wasn't, it wasn't a traditional interview. We, um, we spoke a bit about what I did. I brought a presentation, we just looked at it on the computer in my later supervisor's office um, talked about what I'd done during my master's and basically already told them what I'd like to do during PhD because I had worked on virus entry even though a different virus and that meant I could bring some of my own ideas to that yeah. project because it wasn't fully formulated it was virus entry of coronaviruses and okay. fill in the gap <laughs> and that's how what I did I, I brought some ideas to the interview and we sat down with my daily supervisor and just had a chat about everything and that was it so yeah three months later I think I started my my PhD oh that's Something a really like that. quick process yeah that was very quick and also very good very satisfying actually um moving to a different country brings its own own challenges though um, <laughs> from finding accommodation within that short time period to opening bank accounts um, luckily in the Netherlands everyone speaks English very very well even at a supermarket cash register not a problem 
Um, but I think in another country that can be one of the biggest hurdles and challenges, yeah. Even Germany is not always that easy, depending where you are. France, even less, because they love to speak <laughs> French. And we're Fair not necessarily enough. in a good mood all the time, I know, from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to say that. But it's fine, I'm French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a personal experience. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, God. Um, feels weird talking about all of that but it's uh, it's almost like reminiscing god getting old um <laughs> well it's good because we can share with there are people listeners like and me I'm, as well experienced yeah we want to mm-hmm. so i'm planning to do a phd <laughs> so um, this is a new, good new insight again yeah. to go and talk to supervisors potential supervisors yeah, go and talk to them just Again, once when you send them stuff, when people even here have had direct requests from people for a PhD, if you just send me an email, I'm interested in a PhD, it will go in the bin. Um, if you okay. send me an email, I want a PhD. Here's my CV. Here's a cover letter, or or even just within the email, a proper reason why you want to do a PhD. Then I'm going to look at it because mm-hmm. those are people who are really interested and. Um, some of the good things as well when you apply for a PhD, when you write a cover letter, format it properly. Show that you have attention to detail within those minor details. Um, very simple things that will make an awful lot of difference uh, because it shows that you care, so I care. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these things matter, to me at least, from, from my experience. Um, yeah. So it's a good transition to a second part where we talk about your experience as a supervisor of students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so have you had any master's students or bachelor's even and PhD students under your mm-hmm. supervision? So I currently have two PhD students in the group. A third one is going to start in April, but she's actually a split between uh, my lab and the lab in the Netherlands. So that's All right, that a new challenge. <laughs> um, but to be fair, it's, uh, I love the Netherlands. Obviously, I did my PhD there. So I'm, I'm quite happy to actually also get to go back and forth <laughs> myself. It's like a collaboration between the uni and Edinburgh Uni. Yeah, it's a collaboration between the Leiden University Medical Centre and okay. Edin- Edinburgh University. So within, within the one health space and it's actually back to coronaviruses <laughs> on, on one hand and it's on nidovirus and it's in general within the viruses that I work on at the moment within my lab so it's really uh, complementing to what we do but yeah within the master students um, I've had none in my lab directly um, just mostly because we've grown so fast within the last two and a half years that there was barely time to write any master's projects. But we had Nuffield placement students, uh, mm. quite younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also had, um, within the lab, other students who did their master's projects with some of my colleagues when I was still a postdoc. And obviously that was... Uh, I loved helping I love helping students. Um, I think it's a very important 
learning curve, especially within the UK system where students don't have a lot of practicals. Yeah, we don't have much at all. Gaining your skills in the lab is absolutely crucial. It's not only gaining the skills, but actually figuring out whether you like doing that. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what you're going to do for the next four years, at least, if you're doing a PhD. Even if you go in a completely different way, you have to love lab work. Otherwise, consider bioinformatics or consider yeah, that's me going somewhere else. We I don't like labs. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that's exactly what you have to what you have to figure out. You have to figure out where your skills lie or where your preferences lie. And it's great if you've already figured it out before your masters, but. Here it's even more difficult actually going from one to the others and, and one of my newest staff members, um, research assistant, she came from a, a genetics and more bio- bioinformatics focused master's project and mm-hmm. she's like, you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to do the lab work and I'd like to see the lab work yeah. and, and that was exactly something that complements it because her project's also within a sequencing project mm-hmm. um, so it does really complement two things. It's very genetic oriented, so that really builds skills. And it's quite nice to see or to be able to help people grow like that and grow their skills like that. And the two PhD students that I have in my lab, so one of them, I was the daily supervisor of pretty much from the start in her project, but I was still a postdoc. And then she kind of just merged into my group now. She's (laughs) finishing up this year, so that's a new uh, stressful phase. But I had the opportunity to be second supervisor, which is actually a requirement here. You're not allowed to be a first supervisor until you've actually had someone graduate as a second supervisor. Um, I heard about that before. Yeah, I think that's quite good safety net because... Supervising and training people is one thing, but also navigating within the system is another thing where it's sometimes quite handy to have someone who already knows about the little details and the little mm-hmm. things. Um, but, yeah, so... What to say about PhD students? I think one of the things that luckily has come to people's attention more and more is that PhDs can be stressful. And I've supervised, co-supervised a student who had mental issues once he was writing up because suddenly it all dawns on you. You're in a completely different environment. You have to write every day. Um, and suddenly you kind of reminisce about the last three and a half years yes, of your yeah. life. You know, like You have these moments where you definitely think, what on earth have I been doing? Because you cannot see beyond the mountain anymore. You just see that wall in front of you. And and it's very understandable that we see that. But at the same time, even with students I have now, I think every single person, even when I was a PhD student, you hit a wall in year two. Everyone does. Mm -hmm. Somewhere earlier or later. But you have been working your butt off within the first year. And then you have reached no endpoints with anything and you have to have an awful lot of self-motivation to keep on going because it's research not everything works you have to do things over and over again and if you don't have support from your group and from your supervisor then that can be a very very tough time and that's one of the moments where I think students need 
a lot of motivation through that and usually once they're on the other side of that they're incredibly independent and usually incredibly self-motivated as well um, because suddenly you see that you can wrap up things that you can tie up that you've discovered something new uh, which is very satisfying because that's why we all do this isn't it yeah um so yeah i think that is probably also one of the most satisfying things about having PhD student because you really see them grow up even though they're already grown-ups <laughs> uh, you see them grow up grow up as researchers as independent people as independent scientists and similar to that with the master students actually um, all of the ones that I've seen have not directly supervised but they also go through this process where in the beginning, you have to ask your supervisor 20 questions a day and you feel stupid all the time because I should know this or should I know this or is this <laughs> yeah. a stupid question? <laughs> There's definitely no such thing as a stupid question. Um, well, there is the one that isn't asked. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and sometimes I think a lot of these so-called stupid questions trip me up because it's like, hmm, never actually thought about that or once second time someone asks you the same stupid question because guess what stupid questions come back like actually I looked it up for a previous PhD student (laughs) or a previous master's student because guess what we also don't know everything but luckily like yourself you learn where to look for the answers Um, and that's how we grow how we learn so um yeah, Tiny was... question. Um, how? What do you look into in a PhD student like, when you decide who do you take on? What makes you pick a student? Mm. So the thing is, a, a lot of things, a lot of the first things within the within the application packages we get is the CV, and the CV is one thing. I find the motivation letter makes much more of a difference to me um, on top of a decent CV but Mm -hmm. I think when you have the motivation for a PhD and for a specific PhD project that gets you a long way because if you're not motivated for that specific PhD project you shouldn't apply to it because you're stuck in it for four years I mean yeah. granted you could leave earlier but then it's a waste of your time and of your supervisor's time so nobody's going to do that but if you're not fully motivated it's a stressful time it's a busy time and even even then I mean once you talk to your supervisor make sure you're comfortable with them make sure you're comfortable with the lab because that's your social network mm-hmm. and that is as important as the project because it can wear you down much more if you're really not getting along with the lab and, and getting along with the, with your supervisor. That's even worse. Um, but hopefully, uh, I would hope for other supervisors that if we don't think the chemistry is right, we would probably not put a candidate forward. But I think then it's also fair to give people the feedback that... Yeah. Why they're great not? students but you think that maybe on a personal level it would probably be a bit more conflicting situations god knows but to be fair i've yet to encounter that i've never met someone that i couldn't get along with i think <laughs> um i hope so at least <laughs> so 
Yeah. That was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we will see you guys in the next episode. All right. Bye. bye. Stay tuned. Bye. bye.